Our scripture reading today is from Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean? except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is ahead, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I was, uh, I've been uh, a dad of two daughters now for 22, no, I gotta remember, that's wrong math, 20 years. I've had one daughter for 22 years, the other one for 20 years. But I, I, as a dad, I wanted to instill in them the love of the great outdoors. Do we have anybody that loves the great outdoors here in Seattle, right? And we love the great outdoors. And so I said, you know, I'm going to take my daughters on a backpacking trip. And so this was their first ever backpacking trip. And I thought this would be great to expose them to the great outdoors, to instill in them this love of the outdoors. And so we went on this adventure together, and I got a lot of sermon material out of this one trip. And I'm not going to tell you everything about the bears and the butterflies and the copperheads and the rats and all those things. We'll get into those. Are, those will come later in other sermons. But it was actually, I want to tell you about a part that my girls remember at the end of that adventure. We actually were coming out of the woods. We were actually heading out back to the car. We were in the last half mile about to get to the car. We had full packs on. We had just hiked. We were, we were in the last half mile of a 12-mile hike. And, and they were, let's just say there are things that had happened that scared my daughters, so they stayed with me the whole time on that 12 miles. And uh, so they were right behind me. I mean, they were lockstep behind me, and we're coming in the last half mile. And I look ahead of me, and there's some day hikers, you know, those day hikers. <laughs> and there was a family of day hikers, and there were two boys with the fam in the family, so I had two daughters, they had two boys, and the boys, I could see the body language of the boys, they were like, oh, you know, it's been so hard, 
on this day hike, and they're taking their fanny packs off, and they're trying to get their mom to carry their fanny packs. And I can see the, the complaining going on of the boys, and they're, both boys are handing, handing their fanny packs to their mom, and their mom's trying to juggle the fanny packs, and they're hanging on the mom like they're, they're about to die coming into the parking lot. And I've got my two daughters with full packs on who are not giving up their packs to me. And I thought to myself, there's this dad part of me that kicks in. This is not the pastor part of me, by the way. There's different parts, right? <laughs> and I say to myself, these boys need some perspective. They, they need to see what my girls have been doing for the past couple of days. So I just, over my shoulder, they, remember they're right behind me, I said, I looked over at my shoulder and said, pick up the pace. <laughs> and I start moving. And they, they'll tell you, I just started walking faster. Now, this is after... 12 miles already, and they're like, Dad, what are you doing? They're like, what is he doing? What is he up to? I'm like, and I am going to make sure that we pass those boys before we get to the car. And sure enough, we just marched right by them. I wanted those boys to see my two daughters with full packs just marching right by them, not complaining, not giving in to, to the, the, the fatigue, not doing anything. And we just marched right by them. They get back, to, they get to the car, and they're like, what was that all about, Dad? And I just said, Sometimes people need perspective. And they still give me a hard time about that uh, uh, to this day. Like, we, we didn't, and they could have cared less. But let's put it that way. They just, they just wanted to get the car. They could have cared less, right? But there's this part of me, and this dad part of me, you know, that wants to, like, say, pick up the pace. You know, there's this part of me, not to my daughters, but to show to other people that are whining and complaining that there's, that we, there's more to it than this. There's, there, there's a, we can do more than whine and complain. And, you know, we follow Jesus. Jesus was not a fanny-packed day hiker. I mean, he's the guy that did the whole Appalachian Trail or Pacific Crest Trail, whatever trail it is that you aspire to do. Jesus did it all. And do we reflect do we and our walk? Because here's the part of Ephesians. The first three chapters are about the talk. Paul has been giving us a talk. Now in chapter 3, chapter 4, he is now saying, now walk it. Walk the walk. Walk a walk that is worthy of your calling. Worthy of your calling. Get going. Pick up the pace. Show the world that you have a Savior and a salvation worth following, worth picking up the pace for, worth carrying a load for. Worth doing that. It's an adventure, too, by the way. See, Client Snodgrass, commentator, said this. He says, our problem is that we have a million-dollar salvation and a five-cent response. Paul says, live a life worthy, worthy of the calling, worthy of your salvation, worthy of your Savior. And he's saying to the church, pick up the pace. <laughs> Time to get moving time to show the world there's a different way of living this life and navigating this life and walking through this life that everybody else is going, oh, I can't take it. I'm, I'm just, I'm complaining about my little fanny pack, right? He's actually saying, you know, pick it up, get going. And then he begins to explain how we're to walk. And there are two things that he's encouraging us both individually and corporately as a church. The church, he's actually encouraging the whole church at this point. And he's saying to them, you know, there are two things. I want that there are two signs of, that we're looking for in the church. And he says, one is unity, 
And the other is maturity. He's promoting and he's encouraging this calling to unity and this calling to maturity. And one of the things he says, he starts out, next verse, he says, be completely humble and gentle, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Let's actually read that together. This is our memory verse this week. Let's read this together again. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So important. So important. He's saying this is the way you're to walk. You're to walk. Now, he says when you do this, you're going to promote unity within your community and with other people. When you experience humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love. And I think a lot of times it's those things, when we lack those things, when we fail to practice those things, that we actually start to give in to the, to the whining and the complaining and the I just want to give up stuff. And we just start to give in to that stuff. And we start to become disgruntled and frustrated and so forth rather than remembering that we're to reflect our Savior. We're to reflect our calling. We're to reflect our salvation. And did Jesus complain when he went to the cross? Did Jesus, was Jesus not patient and humble? Was his sacrifice not complete because of not only because of his willingness to do this? Fortunately, good for us, good news is we're not called to be crucified but we are called to live a life worthy of the calling. You know, I, I've seen the best the church has to offer, and I've seen the worst the church has to offer. I've been in churches, I've supervised churches. When I was on denominational staff, I worked with about 30 different churches and pastors, and I had to, get in, I had to go into some pretty contentious meetings. And so I, when I say I've seen the best of the church and seen the worst of the church, what I'm I've been in some meetings where I've seen the worst of the church. And I thought about this, and I, I, I still have this image of this gentleman. I can still picture his face, because I was in a, in a meeting, and we were meeting with the church board, and we were basically telling them that, that we were no, you know, the denomination was no longer going to invest in them after five years of investing in them, and no fruit being borne out, and nothing changing, and nothing going on, so we were going to withdraw support, and so I got to be the the bad cop in this situation, you know, we have good cops and bad, I get to be the bad cop, so to speak. And so I walk in this situation, I'm the one that's informing them of this, and there's a gentleman that stands up and he makes this big, he, he begins to just be very harsh. And I'll never forget this because he begins to blame, 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 complain, complain, complain. And then he got up out of his seat and he walked straight up to me. I'm like in the front of the room. He walked straight up to me and he had his fist balled like this as he's coming at me. And I think, uh-oh. And I just kind of remain calm, you know. And he came right up and I thought he was going to hit me. But he didn't, fortunately. <laughs> this was about 1130 at night by this time anyway. By the way, everybody's tired, cranky. And he just shook his fist in my face. And he said, what are you going to do? And I thought to myself, wow. And I said to him, I apologized. I understood. I said, but there was nothing more I could do. And in that moment, though, I realized why the church was falling apart. <laughs> when you have leaders that are like that, the church falls apart. <laughs> Paul said, if you want to keep unity in the church, be humble. 
be gentle, be patient. Forbear with one another in love to keep the bond of peace. He said that kind of, see, we forget that in chapter 2, Paul has said that the dividing wall of what? Hostility has been broken down by Jesus. There's no longer a wall, and, I, and that church leader forgot that that wall of hostility no longer existed. I understand his frustration. I understand his anger. But at the same time, his harshness was getting in the way of anybody moving forward. He needed some humility, and we all need humility. And humility is our ability to let go of our own self-centeredness. That's really a way to define humility. If you want to be gentle, that means you have to let go of your harshness. I have to let go of my harshness and my hostility towards others. If I'm to be patient, I'm probably going to have to let go of my agenda. Do you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes when I'm going places with my family, like backpacking, I have an agenda. I want to get from point A to point B in a certain amount of time with a certain amount of gas in a certain number of miles. My family doesn't always want to do that. Whose agenda am I following? Mine, right? To be patient is to let go of my agenda. To be forbearing in love is to let go of my rights. I have rights. I have privileges that I'm entitled to, yes. But to forbear in love means to I am willing to let go of those rights so that I might love and be forbearing with someone else. See, that's what it's about. That's unity. That brings unity, and it brings us to this place where we have to look back, and that our life is worthy of this calling of unity as well, because Paul says what's going to bring about unity is not all our differences, not our agendas, not our rights, not our self-interest. None of those things will bring about unity. What brings about unity is our shared faith, one body. One spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Our oneness is to call us together to work together for unity and maturity in the church. This is what Paul is asking. This is the calling that Paul is talking about. Then Paul goes in and he says, uh, if you look at the text, he starts to kind of get into this thing about ascending and descending and uh, all these things. And it seems kind of like an interruption to what's going on, but actually it's recalling to us Paul's understanding of the world and heaven and the heavenly realms. So if you look at through the, if you just look at the book of Ephesians, you can start to see how Paul understood in the first century understood the world and the spirituality and the spiritual forces that are at work in the world. So Paul in the letter of Ephesians, basically I'm simplifying it, but he basically looks at what I would call the cosmology, right? Cosmology is our understanding of the universe. And so he's saying that there's this earth, there's earth, and then there's the heavens, which are like the sun, the moon, the stars, as they knew them, what they knew about the universe, the heavens. And then Paul talks about these heavenly realms. He repeats this throughout the letter. There's this heavenly realm where Christ is enthroned. And so when, as he's talking throughout the letter, he's saying, you know, there's earth. And so when he's talking about this ascending and descending, I think he's talking about the enthronement of Jesus Christ. That he, he descended, he came to earth, and then he ascended back to the heavenly realms. He was enthroned in the heavenly realms. So this is Paul's worldview of the universe, his cosmology, right? In a simplified fashion in the book of Ephesians. And if you look at that, then he also says, and this is important later in chapter 6, but so he's got this physical understanding of the universe, but then he says 
that there, that there is this, notice that there's a dotted line between the heavens and earth and the heavenly realms. You see that? That's, that's on purpose. Because what he is saying in his letter of Ephesians, that there are spiritual forces at work in all those areas. That there are spiritual forces at work in the heavenly realms where Christ is enthroned, and those same spiritual forces are at work on earth. And they kind of, this idea, this idea is that they're at work in both places. And here's the other thing that I think is interesting in Paul's understanding of this, is that that's all contested spiritually. So the heavenly realms, even though Christ is enthroned, there's still a contest there for what's happening in humanity. And so what's going on on earth, those spiritual forces are at work. And you see this throughout the letter, him referring to the spirit of the air, the, the evil one that's at work in the spirit of the age. And he's talking about what's going on on earth, but this is also part of what's going on in the heavenly realms as well in Paul's view. Now, why do I explain this? Why teach this? Because what Jesus is doing is as he ascends to the throne, it says that he's giving out gifts to the church. So he's enthroned, two good things for us to know. One, he's enthroned in the heavenly realms. Two, he has not left us unequipped on earth, even despite all these spiritual forces. So you and I, and guess what, what Jesus has put on planet earth to engage this contest, to interchange and exchange or engage in this battle. What is it? The church. And so Jesus is giving gifts to the church in this contested space on earth. The church is here to be a missional outpost of God's heavenly kingdom. Jesus has equipped us, has sent us, has put us here to be a part of this missional outpost on planet earth. And so Jesus is giving gifts, equipping the church for good work, for good service. So we're to be the ones that are equipped to do good service. That's what he says So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach what? Unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become what? Mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So when he says this word equipped, it really means that that these gifts and these people are being put together perfectly. If you, if you, how many people have ever broken a bone, you know, it, like, a, like a complete break, and then they have to reset the bone, right? And yeah, it's not a good image to keep in your mind, especially if you've gone through it, painful. But what they want to do is they want to put that bone back perfectly fitted together so that it heals together and becomes strong. The same idea here is that what Jesus is doing is he's gifting the church, he's putting people into the church, he's putting them together so that they can all come together in unity to be built up, perfectly fitted together, so that the church can become what? Mature. Unity to maturity. Notice also that what's going on here is that there's a diversity of gifts. He he mentions five here. Other places he mentions a lot more. But there's a diversity of giftedness that's being put together for the maturity of the church. And I think about this, that this diversity of gifts is for the maturing of the church. I think a lot of times we think about diversity in the church. We think about ethnic diversity, socioeconomic diversity, uh, diversity around uh, abilities or uh, disabilities, those types of things. We think of diversity that way, but that's not the way Paul's thinking about it. 
In fact, Paul says other places, we no longer look at each other from a worldly point of view, but from what? A heavenly point of view. And how is God seeing us? And what is God looking for in us? And maybe what God looks for is not what you and I look for. Maybe what God looks for is gifts, abilities for the kingdom to bring about maturity and unity. I, I, there was a gentleman at a church I served, and I told you there was the, the worst of the church, but this is a, the best of the church. He was a gentleman, and I, and I was watching him interact with people. I was watching him. We had known each other, and he, he had been in a Bible study, and I, I noticed that he was really, prayer was very important to him. He was praying for people, and I could just see him just be in the hands and feet of Christ everywhere he went. And, and he would, uh, one day we were actually praying, we were sending a youth mission team out, and he was praying, and they invited him to come pray for their mission team. They didn't ask the pastor, what, what, what's wrong with these youth? They asked this guy, his name was Jules, they said, Jules, can you come pray for us? And so Jules went in and prayed for the mission team, and I just happened to not be preaching that Sunday, that, it was a Sunday morning, and I went out there, and I just listened to him pray, and I was so encouraged. And I, and I just started to see these spiritual gifts in him. And I, and I said, Jules, would you become a leader in our church? Would you, and not just any leader, I want you to be one of our top leaders. Like what we would call there, there was a key position that would be the lay leader of the church. They would be like the, the co-pastor of the church, but from a lay perspective. And I said, Jules, would you be the lay leader of our church, the highest co-equal position with the pastor in the church? And he said, yeah. And he did a phenomenal job. Because what did I do? I saw gifts in him, and I said, here's your gifts. You need to be doing In fact, he had better pastoral gifts than I did. And so I needed, I said to him, you, I, wanna, I just want to appreciate and affirm your giftedness. Now here's the thing. One other thing to know about Jules. He was African-American. He was the first African-American to ever serve as a lay leader in that church. But I didn't ask him to serve to be a leader because he was black. I asked him to serve, and the church saw his giftedness. He was asked to serve out of his giftedness, not out of the color of his skin. Not out of the worldly viewpoint but out of a godly viewpoint that says you're gifted, you're called, you have gifts to serve the church, to help the church, to unify the church, to mature the church. And I think Jules appreciated that. In fact, he told me he appreciated that. Because he says, I wasn't asked to do this because of the color of my skin. I was asked to do this because you saw the gifts of leadership in me. And isn't that how we all want to be valued? <laughs> isn't that how we all want to be seen in that way? I think that's actually what Martin Luther King had in mind when he said, I, I, I have a dream that there be a day when we no longer see each other as black and white or red, yellow, all those things, but we see the character of each other. Paul, MLK said that in his speech, that we no longer look at people from an outwardly point of view, but from we were able to see them on the inside and who they were and who God created them to be. I also throw this out too. So, so gifts, not, not, it's, it's, if it's about gifts, it's not about ethnicity. The other thing I would say, and I throw this out to an academic community, is that maybe it's also not about degrees. 
Maybe it's about giftedness for leadership. Maybe it's not about how many degrees I hold or how much education I have. And why do I say that? Well, who was the head of the church at this time and period? And those of you who have been to church a while, who, who's the head of the church in Jerusalem right now in the first century? Who? Peter? Peter. How many degrees did Peter have? Three degrees? No degrees. Peter's degree was fishing. Peter's degree was in fishing. He was on a fishing boat before he became the head of the church. Why? Because Jesus looked into Peter and said, Peter, I see in you the gifts of leadership that will bring together and build my church. Not because of your education or your ethnic background, but because I see in you the gifts that will serve what I want to do on planet earth, what I want to do in the kingdom. So God looks at things and we need to begin to have those eyes. Paul says two other things that will promote maturity in the church is not only when these gifts come together, but he says that you and I also need to do two things and it has to do with loving each other. One thing he says is that you and I are supposed to speak the truth in love to one another. Not with harshness or hostility. Do you, do you know that you can be repulsively right? Did you know that? If, if my wife comes to me and says, how does this dress look on me today? Loving husband? Right? I may have an opinion about that. Right? And, and right or wrong, I could, be rep I could repulse my wife by the truth that I speak, right? So you can understand that there are times when I could speak the truth, but I could do it in a repulsive way. Paul says speak the truth in love. That means I've got to use some gentleness, I've got to use some patience, I've got to use some forbearance, and I have to use some humility to do that to speak the truth. And here's the thing, I find that as people know that they're loved and cared for, they're more willing to listen to the truth. It's not the other way around. You don't speak truth and then love people. You love people and then you're able to speak the truth. So that's what you and I have to learn to do in the body of Christ to help it become mature. The other thing Paul says is that we're to grow and build each other up in what? Love. That in the church, that this ought to be the place. Here, I got this you know, this image of the church where this ought to be the place where we are loved. You know, because you spend six and a half days rest of the week, right, probably not being loved in some places. At work, on the highway, in the neighborhood, someplace. So there may be places, maybe even in your home, own home. You know, the church is to be the place where we're loved, the church is to be the place, and that will create what? Maturity. And that will create unity. Another not dad story, before I was a dad, I was a coach. I was a coach after I was a dad. And one of the things I loved to play growing up was volleyball, and into my college years and post-college years, I played a lot of volleyball, co-ed volleyball, and... Um, Every week when I was on staff with Youth for Christ, we would take young people on a, on a beach week. We would go to the beach. It's a, on the East Coast, the beaches are a tad different. 
than the Pacific Northwest. Less rocks, just think of that. More sand, less rocks. And logs. No logs. <laughs> and we're on the, we would go to the beach, and one of the great things about the beach there is that we would go and we would have a week-long volleyball tournament, double elimination volleyball tournament, co-ed volleyball tournament, beach volleyball. This was like my favorite thing to do. And we, took, we usually took about 100 uh, students with us to this beach week, and and so this particular week, we were heading out, and then we had three volleyball teams. And I wasn't around for the planning of the volleyball teams, but I was coaching one of the volleyball teams. So I get there the weekend before, and the two other coaches come to me and said, hey, Matt, we got this plan. We, we want to win the championship this year. And so what we've done is we've created three teams, but we stacked two teams. We've taken all the best players... And we put them on two teams, and we have this third team that doesn't have any good players on it from coach perspective. And said, Matt, we're going to take the two stacked teams, and you get to take <laughs> the third team that doesn't have all the good players. And I realized that there's, there's importance to showing up to planning meetings, really, right? <laughs> you know, and I have to, if you didn't catch it from the first illustration, I'm a little competitive, and to be honest with you, when they told me this, I was not happy with them. I was like, what do you mean? How come you guys get to coach the winning teams, you know, the best teams? Because we had never won this tournament the years that we'd gone. And they were really like, we're going to win this year, right? And so we're going to put all the best players. And I was like, what about, what about who? Me. What about my agenda? What about my preference? And so they said, well, you know, we figured you could handle it. You know, aren't you going to seminary or something? <laughs> Humility, gentleness. So we get there, we're on the bus, and I'm meeting my team on the bus, and I'm checking them all out, and I'm like, oh, this isn't good. I had one good player on the team that I had, had esteemed as good. And so we get out there, and we're warming up. And, I, and I, you come to a point where you're just like, as a coach, you know, I have no time to instill skills, to go over basic fundamentals of volleyball and all these things. I've got this group. I've got this team, and I just got to roll with it. And uh, so I get in there, and I, and I just kind of made a decision. You know, I, there's nothing, I can't change anything about this situation. I'm just going to roll with it. And so I just made a determination. I said, I can't change the dynamic or anything, but I, what I can do is build this team up. I can encourage them. You know what it means to encourage? To put courage into somebody. To, and, and what are people who, if you, how many people have, aren't good volleyball, but who want to admit that they're not good volleyball players and you've played volleyball? And, and you know when you're not a good volleyball player and you go out on the volleyball court and you're like, the ball's coming at you and you're like, ah, Right? So I didn't want that happening, right? So what did I need to do to the What did I need to give all the players? Courage. That they could do it, that they could hit the ball. So this is, this is my whole coaching philosophy right here in a nutshell. So we get out there on the court, and it doesn't matter how bad it gets, I am not going to stop encouraging. I mean, we're missing balls. We're shooting things different directions. I'm like, part of me is going, the net's that way go that way, right? But I'm like, oh, no, all right, that's all right. Good job. You'll get it next time. Just, I'm just going to encourage. But you know that one player I had that was really good? 
guess who was frustrated? And he was ball hogging, running all over the court, jumping in front of people, trying to be the savior of our team, trying to be the Messiah of our little beach volleyball tournament. But as he was trying to do this, you know what else he was doing? He was getting frustrated with the other players. And his attitude was starting to show. He wasn't encouraging. His body language and some of his comments were discouraging. Bad attitude. He was sending the emails to the other team members. You stink. You're not doing it the right way. You're not doing it the way you're supposed to. And he was letting them know. And here we are in his first or second game and the team has fallen apart, and no matter how much cheering I do. And then it dawned on me, take him out. So here I took our best player, and I said, off the court. Off the court. He looked at me like, what? I'm like, off the court. So he came over, and he sat down in the sand, and he started to pout. And I just kept encouraging the team. And something miraculous happened. What miraculous happened was that as he got off the court, and then they, the rest of the team started to go, ah, got it. And without him there, guess what happened? They started to go after the ball. And they made mistakes. They didn't always get it right, but they kept going after the ball. They kept trying. They tried harder. They began to do better. They began to encourage one another And even when they started to make mistakes, they would say, it's okay. They would help each other up out of the stand. They would get back at it. They would get focused again, and they'd start playing volleyball. And another miracle happened. We won that game. And then the other guy on the sideline got the message. And he, another miracle happened. He apologized. He says, "I, I got it now. I'm okay now. I will go. And he went back out on the court, and he began to work with the other team members, and he began to encourage them and play with them. And then all of a sudden, a miracle of all miracles happened. This team just formed before my eyes. And they won the next game, and the next game, and the next game, and the next game. They went all the way to the semifinal championship game. Beat out one of the stacked teams, by the way. We went farther than one of the stack teams, but I also have to tell you that the other stack team won the championship. But that tells you what encouragement and love does. That tells you that we need to sideline some things in the church. There are some things that just need to be sidelined, and that's bad attitudes. That's critical criticism and complaining and whining and people who don't like their fanny packs because we are called to live a life worthy of our calling, our salvation that is lived out in humility and gentleness and love, forbearing with one another, forgiving one another, speaking truth to one another in love, but so that we're all built up in maturity as a team, as a church as a missional outpost on earth that is in the midst of a spiritual battle. Amen? Today I'm going to invite you to do something different. Usually I just pray here, but I actually want us to pray together a prayer of confession. 
uh, a prayer that we want to pray in, in unison and in confession, and then we're going to, I'm going to pray, and then we'll pray the Lord's Prayer together because we're what? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, one prayer. We're also people of one prayer in a lot of ways. But let's pray together this prayer of confession. God of unity and love, place within each of us a spirit of hope and community. Have mercy upon us when we speak without love or act without humility. Cleanse us with living water of your grace. Create in us willing hearts to live in patience and gentleness. Raise us up to be your children, growing toward maturity in faith and love. Strengthen this church that we may be a model of ministry and unity for all the world to see. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now I wanna just invite you to silent confession. Invite you right now to confess any of those places where you have not been humble or patient or bearing with one another in love, where maybe you've been hostile or harsh or demanding or just had an all-around bad attitude and it's hurt others. And so just confess that to God. God. God can take it. God can hear it. There is grace in this place. And so just confess it to the God who loves you. Speak truth about yourself to the God of grace and love. God, we confess that we don't always get it right, that we fail. And sometimes the people that we hurt are not only ourselves, but the people around us. So forgive us. Forgive us for the times where we've hurt others with our words or our attitudes or our actions. And Lord, help us to be mindful of our lives and conducting our lives and walking in such a way that we reflect your love and grace and truth. So Lord, call us again, pick us up again. We thank you that you forgive us, that we know that when we confess our sins, you are gracious and just and merciful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we thank you for that forgiveness. And this table which calls us and reminds us of your forgiveness and your new covenant, which calls us to maturity and unity with you in this world. We pray that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts of bread and cup that they may be for us the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the grace, the forgiveness, the love, the truth of Christ at work in our lives today. And we pray together today as you've taught us and unified us to pray that prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.